We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, and as you read through this chapter, you see that there is a central vision centered around an angelic person, and this, of course, comes between uh, what is written in the chapter 9, at the end of the chapter 9, there is in the minds of many, a break until we come to verse 15 of chapter 11. We have to understand that throughout the book of the Revelation, it is not uh, sequential. We are not to think that we begin at chapter 1 and then carry smoothly through to the end uh, with event following event. We, as we've emphasized, see John given a particular vision, and then he is taken back to review, as it were, the same period, but from a different angle, given fresh insights and further details as to what is to take place in the purpose of God. And this is why we have so many sevens, or part of the reason why we have so many sevens, uh, the seven uh, trumpets, the seven vials that are to be poured out. You can see on occasions similar statements as regarding what takes place when these actions are taken. And uh, therefore, we are to understand that John is given a view uh, on the same areas and periods and events, but seeing it differently and given further details so that the whole of the uh, church's history, as it were, from the New Testament to the coming of Christ is set before us. Now you will see that at the end uh, of the chapter 9, the events that are recorded and the attitudes of men and what takes place among them is following the sounding, the sixth angel sounding the sixth trumpet. And the first woe is completed, verse 12 of uh, chapter 9, one woe is past. And then when we come to the chapter 11, verse 14, we read, the second woe is past. And then in verse 14, it follows, and the third woe cometh quickly. I remember when these were announced back in verse 13 of chapter 8, there are three woes stated. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. 
And we keep in mind that amongst the inhabitants of the earth are those who are the servants of God who have been sealed to be protected, but they are still inhabitants of the earth so that they are affected by the events that take place. We cannot think because they've been sealed because they are secure, because they are under divine protection, they will not be affected by the wicked and evil goings-on and activities of men. That is what we must keep in mind. The church is a suffering church, but still preserved in the midst of all the iniquity. And as... In the chapter 10, we are brought, as it were, to that uh, time between the uh, fulfillment of the woes. A vision is given to John to encourage him and to encourage the church, uh, the members of which are inhabitants on the earth. Woe, woe, woe unto the inhabitants. And John would know, well, the saints of God are inhabitants. And these woes, when they come, they come upon the society in which they actually live, in which the church of Jesus Christ exists. And therefore, because this is the case, they need encouragement They need to be aware of who is actually in control. And that's what we have here in the chapter 10. This uh, intermission uh, in between uh, the fulfilling of the woes. I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. It is interesting when you go through the book of the Revelation to see how many things are referred to that come down from heaven. But here we have John with this most fascinating and encouraging vision. I saw another mighty angel, some translated Almighty angel, I saw another almighty angel come down from heaven. And then uh, there is a description given of this mighty angel. Then there is detailed uh, description of his actions and the fact that he has in his hand a little book open that John is directed to go and take from the hand of this mighty angel. And then, you see, we come to chapter 11. The second woe is past. Uh, The second woe, and uh, it is past, but meantime, uh, John is seeing what will Enable the church to survive what will keep it and hold it up in the midst of all these 
terrible events which we have to some degree looked at. But as I said, the 10th chapter focuses around this vision of the mighty angel. And the very first thing that is necessary is to identify who this mighty angel is. Now, not everyone is agreed as to the identity of this angel. And because it is an apparently mysterious person, some simply refer to this mighty angel without endeavoring to identify him at all. I believe the evidence is clear that this cannot be other than the glorious Redeemer himself. We see throughout the book of the Revelation many, many references to angels. And we're told what they say, we're told what they do, But this angel is described as another mighty angel. He is another angel, and he is different. But he is, we are given a description of him that very obviously sets him apart from all the other angels. Now, one of the ways in which the scriptures are often misinterpreted is because of the approach we make with a 21st century mind. We have to understand who the author is, who the writer is, and what he knew and how he understood the ministry of the Redeemer. John just doesn't write the book of the Revelation. John writes three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He also writes one of the four Gospels in which he introduces us to the Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But again and again, John directs our attention to the words of Jesus Christ, reminding us of his claims, reminding us of who he stated himself to be, reminding us of his relationship with the Father, and reminding us of how he spoke in the name of the Father, the mind and the purpose of the Father. You have in John's Gospel in chapter 6, chapter 8, you have the Savior stressing that he never spoke uh, his own words, but he spoke what the Father had given to him. But It is very clear in the chapter 12 of John's Gospel 
verse 49. This is what John would have remembered the Savior saying. When he's writing the book of the Revelation, he's not ignorant of what the Savior has told him and informed the other disciples of what he has heard. And here's what Jesus says in John 12, 49. I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. Whatsoever I speak, therefore, even as the Father said unto me, so I speak. Now, in this capacity, it is very obvious that the Savior, the Son of God in our nature, is referring to himself as the messenger as the servant, as the minister, as the angel of God. Back in the Old Testament, you have again and again mention made of the angel of the covenant, the angel of Jehovah. In Acts chapter 7, you have Stephen there preaching to the Jews, after which, of course, they stoned him because they didn't like what they were hearing. But Stephen, during the course of his sermon, refers to the bush that burned in the wilderness. And he says that the angel of the Lord spake out of that bush unto Moses. Yet when we go back to Exodus, to the very incident We have not only there the mention of the fact that it was the angel of the Lord that uh, spake unto Moses out of the bush, but in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 6, this is what the voice said. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So that you see clearly the connection between the voice that is speaking and the voice of God. It is One voice, one message, one authority, uh, the angel of the Lord speak, but it was God who was speaking. And when we come here to Revelation chapter 10, this angel is another mighty angel, but as I said, he is the only angel that is actually described. Other angels, we hear them speak, we see what they do, but their persons are not described. 
This angel, however, is described for us. He, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. Remember where he comes from. The throne that is central to everything that's going on. And that throne is the throne of God and the Lamb. And it does not mean that the throne is unoccupied because the Lamb or the Son, as the angel of the Lord or the messenger of God, is speaking, comes to earth to speak. As Jesus said, when I speak, the Father's speaking. We speak together. We speak as one. We say the same thing at the same time. And here's this mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud. Now when John would see this, his mind would go back to the Old Testament as we've so much emphasized and it would go back to the Psalms, it would go back to the prophets, to the references to God himself dwelling in the cloud, appearing in the cloud, wrapped in the cloud when Moses went up into Mount Sinai to receive the law. God appeared In the cloud, when God was leading the children of Israel uh, to the promised land, he led them, uh, hiding, as it were, himself in the cloud. And uh, you reference upon reference to the fact that God dwells in the cloud, or robes himself in the cloud. Now, angels... This is not said of them. Ordinary angels. He was clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was upon his head. And John would have immediately uh, considered this cloud to symbolize uh, God's covenant. The, cloud, the, the rainbow, rather. You remember when God... Uh, visited the world with the great flood and God said he would not send such a destructive judgment again. The evidence of that was the rainbow. And here there's a rainbow upon his head. He is representing and speaking as the covenant head and because of the covenant. It is a covenant message for his covenant people, the people who are inhabiting the earth, who will endure the trials and tribulations that will arise out of a wicked, God-rejecting society. They will feel it. They will feel the pain of it. They will suffer in it. But here is the glorious Christ bringing home to them the fact of his covenant that is ordered in all things ensure, and he will speak as one representing 
that covenant, his fees, was as it were the sun. No angel is ever referred to in such a manner. His face was as it were the sun. It wasn't the sun, but it shone with a brightness that obviously John couldn't even look upon. For no man has seen God at any time. And here is uh, the one uh, described then as his feet as pillars of fire. Now John, seeing this, would keep in mind what he had already seen in the first chapter of the book of the Revelation. Uh, John turned to see or hear, see the voice that was speaking to him, verse 12 of chapter 1. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, and so on. And you can see the similarity uh, to the description that is given here of this mighty angel. But then, not only is he given this unusual and this peculiar description, but we have reason to note what he then does. He, we are told, came down from heaven. But what does he do when he comes down from heaven? We're told in verse 2, he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth. What a mighty angel he must be. What a mighty messenger from the throne of God. He comes down from heaven and he plants his feet firmly, one upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. Now all these gestures, all these actions have a very important message to convey to John and to the seven churches in Asia through John. What does this mean? He comes down from heaven. Where does he come to? Naturally, he comes to this world. He comes to this earth. Now, in John's day, the world that you and I live in and that he lived in consisted, as far as he was concerned, of simply two matters. Land and sea. Earth and sea. That was it. That made up the earth. That made up the world of John's day. And here's one foot where? On the sea and the other foot on the land. What does that tell us? 
First of all, he is claiming it as his possession. No angel had any warrant to make such a claim. You go back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy, for example, when God was uh, fulfilling his promise to Abraham and the Hebrews were to enter into the land and the giants were there and the cities were walled to the heavens, what did God say? Every place upon which they put their foot, he would give it to them. And when Joshua then is uh, leading the children of Israel into the promised land, God gave them encouragements. Joshua in the chapter uh, 1, verse 2, Moses, my servant, God said, is dead. Neither for arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people unto the land which I do give them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given you, as I said unto Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand against thee all the days of thy life, and so on. When this angel puts his foot upon the sea, and upon the land. He's claiming the whole world as his possession. He's laying claim to it. It belongs to me. Remember whenever Satan, the devil, led the Savior into the wilderness to be tempted, he took him up to a high mountain, he showed him the kingdoms of the earth, and he said, all this will I give thee if you bow down and worship me. Jesus, of course, uh, did not do so. But here we see this great scene. The mighty covenant angel, the angel of the covenant. The voice of the Almighty is speaking as he puts one foot on the sea and another foot upon the earth. He is making it his claim. It is given, of course, in Psalm 2, by a decree, a sovereign decree of God. But it also has another significance. Not only is he laying claim to it, but he is prophetically triumphing over it. Remember what's taking place. Woe, woe, woe unto the inhabitants of the earth. And we see when the trumpets sound, the terrible plagues, the devastating plagues and afflictions, and men hardening against God, 
this society becoming more and more and more depraved and more determined uh, to rebel against God. But here's the mighty angel with one foot on the sea and another foot on the earth, triumphing, declaring he will triumph. You go back to the Old Testament, which John, of course, we keep saying it, was familiar with. What happened, you have, for example, in the book of Joshua, there when he begins to conquer the land in Joshua, uh, you have in the uh, chapter 10, five kings that are conquered, they were hiding in a cave, and they're taken out, and Joshua orders them to be brought out, to be executed. Verse 24 of Joshua 10, it came to pass, when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, the Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed, be strong, and of good courage for thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. This was a custom when enemies were conquered, they would be brought out and humiliated. And this was a way of humiliating them, those who had triumphed, would put their feet upon their neck. And this is, again, symbolic. It was a symbolic act that those who put their feet upon the necks of their enemies had triumphed. Those whose necks the feet were upon were defeated and conquered. Now here the mighty angel puts his feet on the necks of his enemies because the earth is full of his enemies. They are cursing him. They are violating his laws. They refuse to repent. They are living in defiance of the one who is king of kings and lord of lords. But here, John, he might be looking out. How, How are we going to survive these terrible onslaughts? How is the church going to come through these terrible, dark times? Here's the encouragement. John, look at this. The mighty angel comes down and he puts his foot upon the sea and he puts his foot upon the land. A symbolic act. I will conquer. I will triumph. I will put my foot upon the necks of my enemies. That's what God said to Joshua. Fear not. And the glorious Christ has no reason to fear, but he will triumph in the end. In fact, when 
Paul is writing to the Corinthians there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There he speaks of the end coming, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 24, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of uh, to God even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, he will have put his feet upon the necks of his enemies. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. All these are further evidence as to the identity of this mighty angel. Here John is shown that in the midst of all the chaos and rebellion and defiance of God, the glorious Redeemer is going to triumph and the church is going to be kept and it is going to be upheld and it will rule and reign with him as he promised. But you will see the reason for this because later on you have in the same book of the Revelation things taking place uh, both in the sea and on the land. You have uh, John given visions of beasts, terrible beasts that were going to plague the earth, that were going to bring afflictions upon uh, the sons of men and the inhabitants of the earth. But where do they come from? You go to Revelation chapter 13. I stood, verse 1, upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Ah, but before that beast arises out of the sea, the glorious mighty angel has already put his foot on it. And these beasts, no matter how terrifying, no matter what devastation and havoc they work in the earth, no matter what influences and power they have over the inhabitants of the earth, here is the glorious one, and his foot is on the very neck of the beast that will arise out of the sea. He's already put his foot there. He's already claimed victory. He is already conquered. And then again, you uh, see in the same chapter uh, 13, another beast, and uh, he rises out of the earth. Verse 11, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And the, he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. Can you imagine if John had seen this first? You see this beast coming out, out of the sea. And another beast coming out of the earth. What is to become of us? 
What are they going to do? What havoc they are going. And then you, when we come to them and see the, the mighty power they have over men, the inhabitants of the earth. Ah, but John, take a look at this. Before those beasts arise, the glorious Christ has already got his foot upon their necks. He's already conquered. He is the one going forth conquering and to conquer. And you see, this, of course, is what we would expect. The glorious Redeemer, his great care is his church. The redemption of his church is what his ministry and his rule and his reign is all about. And you see, uh, for example, in the case of Peter, Peter didn't realize what lay ahead of him. He didn't know the mighty power of the tempter. He didn't know that he was totally incapable of withstanding the dark powers of Satan. Satan hath desired to have you. Isn't that an amazing thing? That the Savior knows the desires that are in Satan's heart. He knows what he's intending to do. He knows what he's working at. He knows what he's planning. He knows what he wants to do. And he said, Peter, Satan wants to get hold of you. But I have prayed for thee. And Peter might think, well, I doubt that very much. I don't feel him anywhere near and I don't feel I've succumbed to any evil suggestions of his. In fact, I feel confident that I'm uh, totally devoted to my Savior. I'm totally his. I'm totally on his side. I'm totally devoted to him. Ah, no. I know something you don't know, Peter. I know what's in the heart of Satan. And I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And how wonderful it is to know that the Savior so cares for his church and so cares for his people that he goes ahead of them. He's acting before they're even tried. And here is that glorious Savior showing to John why he should not be discouraged or downcast. Everything's under control. The very worst may happen, Ed John. The very worst may happen. You're going to see Satan, the devil, coming down Again, one of those things that comes down from heaven, coming down among the sons of men. Chapter 12 of uh, this book, uh, woe, verse 12 of chapter 12, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. Can you see it's mentioned? Inhabitants, the land and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you with great wrath. Well, if John knew anything about the devil, and if he was aware of what Paul wrote to the Ephesians, 
the need to put on the whole armor of God, that they might stand against his wiles. Here it isn't just wiles. He's come down with great wrath. He's furious. He's intending to go to war. He has come down with great wrath. John, the worst may yet, uh, may be yet to be. But John, never forget this. Never forget this sight, John. Look at what is in this vision. The mighty angel and his feet are burning like a fiery brass. He has put his feet before ever Satan, before ever the devil comes down uh, to those who are the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. I've been there before him. I'm ahead of him. And I have my people's interest at heart. I will take care of them. This indeed is a wonderful vision for John. Then we see that in verse 3, this mighty angel cries with a loud voice. As when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. He is, of course, the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is how he had been identified by John earlier, or by the angel to John earlier. Now he cries, he puts his feet on the sea and the land, and then he lifts up his mighty voice, and he roars like a lion. Now John was familiar with what was written in the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets. Uh, He knew what was written, for example, in Amos, uh, you might Uh, Look at, well, there's Amos, there's Joel, there's Jeremiah. And you see various references to the Lord roaring out of Zion. And when he was roaring, he was roaring to warn his enemies. He was roaring against them. You can look, if you wish, at uh, Jeremiah Chapter 25, just for the uh, confirmation, Jeremiah and the chapter 25, and you can see the purpose of this on occasions when the prophets were dismayed at what was taking place that they could hardly explain. In uh, (coughs) Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 30, uh, Prophecy against them these words and say, The Lord shall roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He shall give a shout as they that tread the grapes against the inhabitants of the earth and so on. And it is similar in the prophecies of Amos and Joel 
uh, because, of course, they were uh, ministering and prophesying very similar situations and what the prophets were being told and what they were conveying to Israel was, your enemies might be great and mighty, but the Lord will lift up his voice and he will roar against them and he will warn them of his mighty power, of his devastating power to destroy them. And here in this 10th chapter of Revelation, we read, he cried, this mighty angel plants his feet on the sea and the earth, and then he roars with a loud voice. And there's such a roar that his enemies will hear. And the beasts may come up out of the earth and they may come up out of the sea, but he roars against them. And he roars to defy them. And then we're told when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices in response. Again, thunders, whenever John is seeing these visions, He doesn't have the New Testament to explain anything. But he has the Old Testament. And he knows that again and again, not only does God roar against his enemies, but he thunders. And he thunders in indignation. And he thunders in judgment. In the psalm that we sang from, we may go to it in the prose Version, the Psalm 29, seven times in that Psalm, we have reference to God's thundering voice. In Psalm 29, verse 2, we read, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. What voice was upon the waters in Revelation 10? He is one foot upon the sea and another foot upon the land. But we're told here in Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters The God of glory thundereth. This voice is the voice that thunders. It's a mighty voice. It is a voice that is the voice of omnipotence. Then seven times down through that psalm, you see the repetition of the phrase, the voice of the Lord. Verse 3 The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Verse 5, the voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars and so on. Seven times this thundering voice is referred to with its devastating power. And here's the response from the very throne. It's as though there is this great agreement 
The throne is in agreement with a mighty roaring and the declaration and symbol as well as word from him who stands upon the sea and upon the earth. Now then, look what happens now. When the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. Remember, John has been told to write the visions. So he's obedient. And he's writing. He's about to write here what he heard the seven thunders stating. But then we're told he heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Now we do not know and we dare not speculate as to what they uttered. But John is for some reason forbidden to record them. But he's not to forget them. Seal them up. The contrast is very obvious between these things and the unsealing, the seven seals that were to be unsealed, broken, to reveal the decrees, the redemptive decrees of God earlier in this book. Here, there is a sealing up, a keeping secret. As we read in Deuteronomy Chapter 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong unto us and to our children. But God has the right to his own secrets. What John is seeing here is this, and what he's to understood is this, there are some things that God is keeping presently to himself. When we go to the second epistle that Paul writes to the Corinthians, there you have Paul speaking, writing to the Corinthians of a particular experience that he had. And he says he knew a man, obviously himself, that was caught up into paradise, verse 4 of Second Corinthians 12. And heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. There are certain things that God may utter, that man may not utter. And that's what Paul was understanding, which are not lawful for man to utter. God being God remains God. And he does not give license to any creature to speak as he does. They may speak in his behalf. They may declare his message. But God puts bounds and God puts limits upon what man may say. And here, Paul has heard things that he cannot speak to the Corinthians. He cannot write to them. 
but not lawful for him to declare them. And here are things in this mysterious book, so mysterious, that God says, John, do not record them. They remain with me. And when we sometimes look at the events taking place in history, and we think to ourselves, as many do, these who engage in prophetic ministry, they run around, well, this is Emperor Nero here in this chapter, and this is Hitler in this chapter, and this is Mussolini in this chapter, and whatever else. God said to the one who was appointed to write, there are things, John, that you will be aware of, and you inform the seven churches that I uttered them, but they are not to be known. I keep them to myself. So when they think they're clever, and when they think they've worked it all out, let them always remember there's certain links that are missing. I am God, and there is none else besides me. John then, when he sees this mighty angel standing in this manner, making these great gestures and declarations, John is told to do something. He makes an oath, this angel, he swear by him that liveth forever and ever that there should be time no longer, not that time has come to an end, but that certain events are now to take place. They will not be held back. God who suffers long, God who is ever patient. He suffered long in the days of Noah. But then the moment came when it should be time to delay no longer. Sodom and Gomorrah, God waited, listening to Abraham pleading, if there be ten just men, will the city be spared? God was long-suffering, and then the moment came, the time to delay is past. The judgment now falls. And here is the one who's controlling not only the events and the inhabitants of the earth, the very beasts that rise up out of the sea and out of the earth, but he is ordering everything precisely to his own divine order and purpose and decree. No one is telling God what to do. Nobody is dictating to him when he should do anything. He's in perfect, complete control. Then, verse Seven, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sign the mystery of God should be finished as he had declared to his servants the prophets. Imagine trying to understand this book. 
and never bothering to go back to the prophets. Because here's what John is told. What's going to happen has already been spoken of by the prophets. Everything they prophesied hasn't yet been fulfilled. But it will be fulfilled as God purposes. And then you see a voice speaking to John. John, go forward and take that little book out of the hand of the mighty angel. Now this little book is very interesting. In contrast to the book with the seven seals, it is small, it is little. In reality, it means really a booklet, just a little booklet in comparison to the mighty scroll with the seven seals. It is obviously then limited in its information. It does not contain all the information in the mighty scroll with the seven seals. But it provides John with sustenance. He is told he's to go and take this book. And when he went and he said, give me the little book, it was open, it was not a mystery. John could read it. John could understand it. It was open. It was an open revelation. Take it and eat it up. John would go back in his mind to Ezekiel. He would go back to Jeremiah. Ezekiel 2, Ezekiel 3. God told Ezekiel that he was to eat the book, or the scroll that was given to him, and digest its contents. Jeremiah said, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. They were the joy and delight of my heart. Here John is told, Eat the little book. Not only is he told to eat it, he is told to digest its contents. Take it and eat it up, it shall make thy belly bitter. Oh, John, it does record bitter things. And they will not be pleasant when you understand them. But, nevertheless, it will be sweet in thy mouth. Because, like the psalmist, Psalm 119, for example, you find the psalmist speaking of how sweet the words of the Lord were to him. He was to eat this. It would be sweet to his taste. But it would be bitter in the content of what it would reveal. But... John was to eat it not only for knowledge, but for sustenance. This was to be his spiritual sustenance. He was not just to carry this little book around. He was not just to read it, think about it, meditate about it. He was to ingest it and digested. He and that book were to become one. 
The book was to become part of him, and he was to be, as it were, at one with that book. And he was to take it because thou shalt prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And John, you can't do that unless that word abides in you. How many, my dear friends, here this day have taken the little book, the little book of Scripture, that little book, the Bible, and eaten it devoured it so that they and it become one. People come to church. They read the Bible. They hear a sermon on it. It's very good. They judge it, orthodox or not. They pass judgments on it. They make comments on it. But has it ever gotten in to control the life? That's what John was told to do. John, you have nothing to say without that book. You have no message without that book. You have no confidence without that book. John, you must understand. You and that little book have to become one. That's the tragedy in the professing church today. The church in the book of parted. And Christians in the book of parted company. Little attention is given to ingesting the word of God and becoming one with it. The mind of God and the mind of man becoming one. And that's what John was told. But this was received, of course, from that mighty angel. What an encouraging vision that was. John, come what may, you are going to see terrible things happening. Beasts rising up out of the sea. Beasts rising up out of the earth. But John, the Redeemer has already put his foot on their neck. The church is on the winning side. Christ will triumph over all. May the Lord then bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we thank thee for the great revelation of thy truth. How encouraging it ought to be to thy dear people. Whatever is to take place in this world, However dark the day may become, however strong the enemies of Christ and his people are, he has claimed as his inheritance the very heathen. Lord God, open the eyes of our spiritual understanding that we might afresh look at that one who said to his disciples, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature because all power 
had been given unto him in heaven and in earth. Bless thy word. Receive us and pardon us for Christ's sake. Amen.